there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On the last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin and Roger soared high above the clouds in the Great Waldo Pepper. Hill's characters, whether they're dreamers, conmen, or liars, they always look back to a time that the lead characters fetishize and think that, that, oh, this was the real time. The things that happen are so irreversible to Mm -hmm. Waldo. His inability to recover from them, and he is a dreamer, and he doesn't want to live a life of just being a journeyman flyer. And now we bring you the after show. Your backstage pass to exclusive content, answers to your burning questions, and even more film discussion. I'm Satine, I mean, Gala Avery. On today's After Show, I'm bringing you guys something a little different. As you know, there are a lot of movies that Quentin and Roger watch for the podcast. Most of them are aired on the main show, some are discussed and then vaulted, and others never even make it to the microphone. This season, a few heavy hitters slip through the cracks. Today, I've been tasked by Quentin and Roger to dig a little deeper on these movies. To do that, I've enlisted an expert du jour. Joining me in the studio is Mark Hewick, film historian and New Beverly blog contributor. Not only is he the most challenged and least beaten geek on Comedy Central's Beat the Geeks, but he's also been on countless DVD and Blu-ray commentary tracks for projects such as Malibu High, The Candy Snatchers, The Picks, Mac and Me, Born in East L.A., V.I. Warshawski, and the upcoming release of Hollywood 90028. He's written on every topic, from Alice Sweet Alice's star Paula Shepard to the real-life influences and the concept of myth-building on Django The Harder They Come and Django Unchained. And you best believe that when an episode of our podcast comes out, my inbox is full from him with even more information and facts about actors, locations, VHS trivia, and little-known knowledge that is just too good to pass up. Not only that, but he actually did a feature-length commentary track on the Code Red DVD of the movie that we'll be covering today. So, what are we talking about? 1979's The Visitor, 
directed by Giulio Paradisi, featuring actors such as Lance Henriksen, Joanne Nail, Glenn Ford, Shelley Winters, and Paige Connor. This movie even has cameos from directors John Huston and Sam Peckinpah. They are billions of years older than we are, and infinitely more intelligent. We have sought them out with signals in the sky. If they are fearful beings, it is too late to turn back. They know we are here. They know we are here. Mel Ferrer, Glenn Ford, John Huston, Shelley Winters. The Visitor, rated R. The Visitors start Friday at these theaters. Quentin, Roger, and I prepared for a discussion on The Visitor all the way back in January 2021. Originally, this movie was supposed to be in the lineup with Star 80 and Claude Lelouch's Cat and Mouse. However, as the guys started getting into the nitty-gritty about Star 80, it became apparent to all of us in the room that this discussion was powerful enough to stand alone. Thus, the concept of our single movie episode was born. This isn't your first rodeo. As you guys all know, we here at Video Archives watch our movies on VHS. The visitor comes from Embassy Home Video. Like always, we have to start out with reading the back of the box. Here's Quentin to give you the scoop. Katie Collins is no ordinary eight-year-old girl. Indeed, she is unique, carrying with her the power of Satine, an inner spatial force of immense magnitude. Katie's primary mission on Earth is to carry these genes forward, a task accomplished by convincing her mother, Barbara, to bear a similarly endowed male child with whom Katie would eventually mate. Opposing this scheme is the Visitor, a sage of galactic stature who has come to this world not to kill Katie, but to end her confusion, quote-unquote. Find out what happens in this unforgettable supernatural suspense thriller! Running time, 96 minutes. Release date, 1978. Bitted R. Bound under the V's in hard science fiction. Mark, it's so glad to have you here today. Uh, it's an enormous uh, honor for me to, to be on the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled beyond measure. Well, first off, I have to ask about this director for this movie. Giulio Paradisi, who is credited as something different on the actual credits. Yes, uh, Giulio Paradisi was a very in-demand commercial director in Italy, and he had worked under Fellini. And on eight and a half, right? Second eighty, yes. and you know, done done a couple other film projects, but this was going to be like his first big American uh, film with you know American actors and such. And he was working for a producer named uh, Video Asinitis, and he is as much responsible for this movie as Paradisi is. You know, not if not necessarily in a directorial sense, but definitely in a creative sense. Uh, Asinitis. Uh, was a prolific Italian producer. One of his first big American hits was Beyond the Door with Juliet Mills, which was a blatant uh, exorcist ripoff. Beyond the Door was a significant enough hit in America that initially Warner Brothers tried to sue for the ripoff and Ultimately, they settled out of court and Warner's got a tiny fraction of all the money that Beyond the Door made. So and Beyond the Door was released in America by Film Ventures International, the company that Edward Montoro ran. And they released a lot of genre fare in the 70s, most notably Grizzly, Day of the Animals and most infamously Great White, which is the movie that kind of brought them all brought them all down. And Film Ventures 
loved Beyond the Door so much that they bought another Italian horror film and retitled it Beyond the Door 2 to to try and fool people into thinking it was a sequel. And that movie was uh, Mario Bava's Shock with uh, Daria Nicolodi, which is a great horror film on its own. And I, I wish people would find it by itself rather than thinking it's a Beyond the Door sequel, but whatever, you know, puts the butts in seats. So maybe maybe it was initially the visitor was initially supposed to be a sequel to Beyond the Door and then just kind of morphed into being its own thing the same way that Evil Dead 2 was basically a better budgeted version of Evil Dead. The only movie scarier than Evil Dead is Evil Dead 2. Exactly. Because if you look at Beyond the Door, Beyond the Door you know, has your standard uh, – Possession thing, Juliet Mills and, you know, a child and all sorts of stuff. But the ending of the movie kind of leaves it open to a sequel. And since it involves a possessed child, it's essentially where the visitor begins. So it's almost like it was going to be a continuation. But as they were beginning to put together the story for Beyond the Door, because the credited screenwriter is uh, Lou Camichi. But there were other people that worked on it in a in some capacity and were never credited. And w- the one that has been spoken of the most is Norman Wexler, who did the screenplay for Saturday Night Fever. Now, he probably just came in and did a punch up because as they were morphing it, Star Wars opened and then Close Encounters opened and a video's deciding – oh, maybe we should make this more of a space thing. More like a sci-fi comes from outer space. Exactly. And that's how it leaves being a Beyond the Door sequel and becomes its own entity. So Paradisi was hired by Asinitis to do the film. And Paradisi had, uh, according to uh, Kamichi in an interview he did for for one of uh, the releases, because it's had uh, multiple... uh, releases in America. He said that Paradisi was having these largely impractical ideas about how the movie should be like and what should happen in it. And a video was just kind of, okay, yeah, yeah, that's great. You, you, you just play along. And then, you know, once he's out of the room, just, you know, do something a little more you know plausible more under normal. the budget, under the budget constraints that we have. Yeah. Paradisi had been doing commercials, was a second AD for Fellini. And then he comes and he's making this movie, which is supposed to be like a sequel, but it doesn't turn into a sequel because it's so fantastical and it has all these other elements. I've seen, okay, so I had seen this movie before Quentin and Roger watched it and I had been aware of it. My dad hadn't seen it. I think Quentin hadn't seen it before. The first time I watched it, I was like, how how is John Huston and Sam Peckinpah in this movie from this director that like I've never even heard of before? Well, John Huston and Shelley Winters had previously done another movie for a video called Tentacles, which was his Jaws ripoff. Yeah. You know, a video likes to rip off other popular movies. That's what Italian producers <laughs> do. And so it was kind of a natural that he'd be able to get them in for another project. Uh, Peckinpah got recruited because uh, he – he was, you know, short on funds and, you know, needed to keep himself 
busy and paid because around the same time that he appeared in The Visitor, he also appeared in Monty Hellman's China Nine Liberty 37. Yes. And he had, I know Peck and Paul, like, he has a very small part in um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one. And then he's in a few of his own movies. But I was just like, when Peck and Paul shows up, I was kind of shocked to witness Peck and Paul playing her ex husband, the clinic doctor. Um, and John Houston, it just made me think, like, how did Paradisi get these guys? And I guess it's just because of opportunity. Well, it's. It's more Ovidio got these people yes. for Paradisi than Paradisi actively courting these yeah, actors. It wasn't like they were all his friends that he like cobbled together and managed to get. No, that not to discount Paradisi's work, but uh, the casting on this movie is probably all Ovidio's doing. Paradisi's can take credit for getting uh, Joanne Nail in there. That's definitely his pick. Uh because I did an entire commentary track with Joanne for the Code Red DVD edition. Uh, and this was not ported over to uh, the Blu-ray edition of The Visitor that uh, Draft House and Agfa put out. And she was a student at the Actors Studio and had worked with Shelley Winters on multiple occasions, you know, doing workshops. And Paradisi came to those workshops and found her there and recruited her for the film. And she brings up an interesting detail about the relationship between uh, Paradisi and Asinitis, which is that once the production got underway, it became very contentious. Okay. That Paradisi had, when he was courting Nail for the movie, he was speaking English to her. But Throughout the course of production, he almost never spoke English. And the screenwriter, Lou Camichi, confirms the fact that Paradisi was really suspicious of Asinitis. Like he thought that he was going to fire him and replace him with another director. So there was this power play going on between them right down to the script that Lou would put the script together for He's he's the final credited screenwriter. He put it together for Asinitis, and then he brought the script to Paradisi, and Paradisi barely looked at it and threw it out the window. I love that because the movie is like that wild that it feels like it had a script just thrown out the window. That's exactly how it feels. Well, it again, you know, it's bringing in the elements that Asinitis initially wanted, and then. Adding more because, oh, we want this to be space now. Space is cool. <laughs> and Paradisi trying to do his own uh, surrealistic whims and Asinitis either indulging it or telling him, no, you can't. And so there's all this kind of bickering going on in terms of who's going to get you know, the upper hand in, during the production. I, th- I mean, I think it's a success personally. When mm-hmm. I watch the movie, I think it's a success. And I think in recent years, it's really gotten a lot of showtime. Like a lot of people have seen like 13,000 people on Letterboxd have watched it. 3,000 people have liked it. And it has an average of three on the ratings, which is actually pretty good. Like when you think about how many people are rating it. Well, I think that is a very hard earned popularity because – the Visitor has always been in circulation. It had multiple uh, tape releases. It, it even got a laser disc and a CED release 
back in wow. the day. But I suspect it did not reach serious critical mass until around uh, 2005. And I, I think this gentleman's role has not been stressed enough in it. So The Visitor was financed by Asinitis, and it was shot in Atlanta, Georgia. And Asinitis had just done Tentacles, and that went out through American International. The The story I have gotten from people on the inside was that American International was going to release The Visitor. But by the time the movie was ready for release, American International had been bought by Filmways. And Filmways previously was a producer of films for other studios, but didn't release films of their own. They made television shows of their own. You know, they did the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres and the Adams Family. And they decided to get into their own distribution. And when they bought American International, they really started kind of downplaying the low-budget genre films that American was known for. They wanted to they wanted to be more prestigious than that. You know, they liked the fact that Brian De Palma was already underway making Dress to Kill for AIP because he had done Sisters for them before. So they want they liked that aspect, but a lot of the genre fare that AIP had in the hopper, they were kind of deep sixing. Uh that Larry Cohen had made a movie, Full Moon High, also with Joanne Nail, and they pretty much buried that. They released The Burning. I don't know how large of a release they gave it, but it did kind of go come and go pretty fast. So all the AIP leftovers, unless they had a really big marquee name attached, they were just kind of dumping those because, you know, we're a real studio now. So The Visitor did not go out through that. The Visitor went out through a tiny little Atlanta-based distributor called the International Picture Show. And, you know, the fact that they were based in Atlanta, I, I'm pretty certain that they knew the movie was going on. And when they found out it was available, yeah, let's take it. Now, what the fortuitous thing that happened is that after that release, the Samuel Goldwyn Company bought the International Picture Show's assets that initially the Samuel Goldwyn Company was set up just to handle movies from the Samuel Goldwyn family you know, that he had passed on. He was one of the first producers to get his movies back after they went out through major studios. Uh, uh, Selznick was another one. I mean, nowadays it's very it's very common because you've got secondary studios and you've got like little shell companies and everything. Yeah, like, you know, that Arnon Mielhan created Regency Productions and used to be based at Warner Brothers. But then when he took his studio over to 20th, all those Warner Brothers movies went with him. So they don't have them anymore. 20th has them. Mm -hmm. So Goldwyn bought International Picture Show's assets, and they were beginning to release movies themselves as well, in addition to all the old Goldwyn movies that they owned. You know, they became one of the major indie studios of the 80s and 90s. And they made a big deal with uh, Embassy, who had started their own video label. And Embassy initially signed on because they wanted all the, you know, the classic Goldwyn titles, but they were taking on all of these other movies that Samuel Goldwyn was releasing too. And that's how the first version of Visitor comes out. On Embassy Home Video. Yes. And then I think 
Goldwyn switched distribution to HBO and it got reissued there. And then somewhere along the line, Goldwyn's rights expired and went back to Asinitis. Now, when The Visitor was released, it was truncated. You know, mm-hmm. what, you, what you saw on that VHS is not what you see if you buy the Blu-ray. What happened was, yeah, the International Picture Show made cuts to the film, but there was one print that was struck of the original Italian cut that was shipped to Atlanta for the premiere and somehow wound up in a depot or in private hands or what have you. And it fell into the hands of a collector named Adam Hewlin. And Adam Hewlin has uh, relationships with a lot of uh, the great uh, theaters in America that still do 35. He was one of the first people to work with uh, Alamo Drafthouse before there was a Drafthouse releasing or an American genre film archive. He looked into that print and started providing it for venues that wanted to screen it. At the time, he was running a drive-in in rural Texas. And during a break in the season when the drive-in was closed, he road-tripped to L.A. and he brought that print and got it privately screened for a whole bunch of uh, mad genre people. And so so the word started spreading around that, oh, there's a longer version of The Visitor that actually makes more sense. In the short version of The Visitor, Franco Nero only appears at the end. Okay, yeah, because that entire sequence at the beginning really sets up the movie and kind of tells you exactly what you're in for. So without that opening, you're kind of like going to be like treading water the entire time trying to figure out what the heck's going on. As much as I am glad that the longer version has kind of become the default, I really wish the the the, the Blu-ray is out of print. I'm sure it will get repressed at some point in the future. But I hope when it does, they re- include the shorter version as well, simply because the short version, it's already such a WTF movie that the shorter version just adds to adds the, the lunacy. WTF, yeah. That, Is there anything else that's cut from, like, that you know that's cut from the uh, from the Embassy Home video? Most of Peckinpah's performance. Really? So in the initial U.S. version, his role was whittled down to almost nothing. Like, you would have had to blink to recognize him. And also, his lines were dubbed by another actor. It's not his speaking voice in that scene. But yes, in, in the original U.S. cut, his his role is whittled down to nothing. The, the prologue is removed. Uh, in, in the original American version, it doesn't have the entire, you know, freaky intro with birds flying around and you see John Houston, you know, walking across the astral plane and they just bring in the, her name is Katie Collins. She will be eight years old (laughs) and you go and go straight into the action. And so consequently, if you watch that U S version without any of that, and then out of nowhere, Franco Nero shows up in Jesus mode uh, uh, that is that is like you know the capper on the cake 
<laughs> well, for people that are going to be watching this at home, if you don't have the VHS tape, if you're watching on movie, Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, etc., or even the Blu-ray, you're going to be watching the full version. You won't be watching the truncated version. So you'll get the full story. So, so Hewlin started providing this one single print of the uncut version to venues. And consequently, when the first DVD deal was made for the visitor, they they took pains to access that material and and get the longer version on video for the first time. And then a few years later, Draft House did a full deal where they acquired theatrical and video and streaming rights to it. Now, uh, the late Bill Olson uh, went to his grave kicking and screaming over the fact that he still had a, a few more years left on his license for the movie. And that's one of the reasons why he didn't provide any of his materials to them. Now, a brief word from our sponsors. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get back into the discussion with Mark, I found a review of The Visitor by film critic Franklin Browner on the Internet Archive. This review was originally aired on local Manitoba radio back in September 1979 as a part of Franklin's Alone in the Cinema radio show. Listen now as Franklin speaks. Hello, friends. This is your cinema advocate for the larger Winnipeg area, once again broadcasting to you on City Press Ground Frequency Radio, Franklin Browner with a review of a film that will hit our snowy screens this October, just in time for Moloch's favorite perversion of a holiday, Halloween. The film to be reviewed tonight may not take your mind completely off of the hostage situation in Tehran, nor off of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, both troubling situations that seemingly take our fragile world to the bitter brink. But this film, opening at the Epic Theater, formerly the Rex, on a double bill with a more wholesome Rocky Horror Picture Show, will potentially bring you to the brink of your very faith. People of Winnipeg, beware. The film is titled The Visitor. By a director I've never heard of, with the dubious name of Michael Paradise, and is somehow chock full of legitimate A-list talent, like the great Glenn Ford, for example, here reduced to a symbol of the American authority of yesteryear, a bygone institution of trustworthy lawmen. The apocalypse surely is upon us. Not satisfied with Polanski's cynical take on motherhood and the afterbirth that is Rosemary's Baby, nor on Dick Donner's manifesto of how and when one should kill one's own child, the omen, director Michael Paradise throws it all into a phantasmagorical blender, with the outcome being that the treasure of Sierra Madre director John Huston is God, or some such cockamamie bull honky. I can't figure it out, even if I can't take my eyes off the screen, such is the hypnotic effect of this demonic message of a movie injecting its Boschian antichrist imagery into your unprepared consciousness. It is downright insidious. 
Also game to dance with the devil in this exercise of Christian blasphemy is the great Shelley Winters playing Ruth Gordon, Billy Whitelaw part. An actor I've never seen before named Lance Henriksen fills the John Cassavetes, Gregory Peck role. And not badly, I might add, though the proceedings tend to err on the perplexing side. Analogs can be found galore, but with the nonsense dial twisted to maximum nonsense, this film feels fresh and energetic, with enough scenes of shocking violence and wicked insanity to appease any of those war-hungry American viewers visiting our fair cinemas from south of the parallel. The press screening I attended in Toronto was enthusiastic. One might expect that. I attribute it to the fact that the critics of Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver, for that matter, are godless, Satan-worshipping fiends, all in the hip pocket of the corporate, state-funded Canadian media conglomerates that aim to bring down Western civilization. This film is heresy and blasphemy, 108 minutes of it. But, like the world outside of our province's southern boundary, it cannot be ignored. Children of Canada should not attend, for the images and message are both too oblique and too powerful for impressionable young minds. This is Franklin Brenner wishing you and yours a wholesome night at the movies. Thank you, Franklin, wherever you are, for your voracious insights and opinions on The Visitor. And now, back to the discussion with Mark. Okay, Paige Connors playing this little girl, this little eight-year-old demon-possessed evil woman who has some of my favorite lines. I think uh, because Roger picked this actually for... um, on the Pure Cinema podcast for his 2022 discoveries. So he picked this as one of his um, top five. And Paige Connors has these crazy lines, like when the cop comes up to like, oh, you're a child molester. And like all it's like she plays it just so well. Who is she? Uh, Paige Connor was uh, a girl in Atlanta who wanted to act, you know, that her mom started taking her to, you know, lessons and such. She also does a commentary track on uh, the Code Red DVD where she speaks to uh, Scott Spiegel and uh, Jeff Burr, the former Atlanta-based uh, director of uh, great movies as uh, From a Whisper to a Scream with Clue Gulliger, uh, Stepfather 2, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, uh, you know, great genre guy. And and the fact that he's an Atlanta guy and she's an Atlanta child, you know, they're able to bond over local stuff. She talks about the fact that for the the research of the movie, she had to watch The Exorcist. And she loved that because, you know, she was 10 years old and, you know, in other circumstances, her parents never would have let her watch that movie. So she was really enjoying uh, cursing. Uh, she talked about the fact that, you know, some of some of it was shot in Atlanta, but a lot of the interiors were shot in Italy. And oh, interesting. So she spent two months in in Italy and during breaks and shooting, a video would take her around to uh, the sets of other movies that were shooting around that same time. I think uh, I almost one of the Bond movies, I, I think. Possibly uh, Roger's uh, beloved Moonraker, Moonraker because because it, of all the Venice sequences. We get another Moonraker reference, you guys. Paige uh, talked about the fact that uh, Shelley Winters seemed to enjoy hitting her too much. <laughs> that that uh, she said, "quote I love scenes where I get to hit children." Oh, okay. She had to be coached to curse at Glenn Ford 
in all of those scenes, you know, because, you know, she was raised a proper, you know, little lady and her you know, parents said, OK, just this once you can you can say all those dirty words. And the the way that you talk about how she curses that I I really suspect that is an after effect of the fact that these are Italians making this movie, that the the metaphor I would use is listening to some of the earliest ABBA songs where they're in English, but they don't have a command of English. Because they don't speak English. So it's what they think English sounds like. So this is probably what Paradisi thought English cursing sounded like. But you know what? That gives her a quality that it almost feels like it's an adult speaking through her and like an adult that doesn't truly understand what they're saying speaking through her, like an otherworldly sci-fi from space adult. So did Paige Connor go on to do anything after this? Because she is really spectacular in this film. Uh, she has a tiny part in Little Darlings. Oh, really? I may, it may not even be a speaking part, but because Little Darlings shot in Atlanta as well. Uh, Ronald F. Maxwell is an Atlanta-based filmmaker. Uh, he, because of course he went on to do the two big Civil War epics for Ted Turner, of another course. proud Atlantan, and... A lot of the visitors shot at the Omni. As an adult, she is, uh, I believe she owns a makeup studio. Oh, wonderful. John Huston's character is uh, named Yerzy. And that is a creation that Paradisi had. Paradisi had this idea that there would be this body of exorcists who have day jobs. And that Houston was going to be a Polish tailor. <laughs> So, like, you know, his day job was going to be, you know, uh, you know, cutting cloth and he's oh, now he's been summoned to to for this mission. And so they kept they kept the Polish character name, but, you know, made him this space emissary. Yeah. And also because um, Shelley Winters in the movie, she's playing like the nanny, but the nanny who is aware of what he's his mission and aware of her position. And is it because that her child was one of these evil children? Is they, that what they're hinting at? I believe so, that I I suspect that this is one of those plot threads that got hacked away during yes. production and during the, the arguing between Paradisi and Asinitis. But I wanted to bring up the fact that the original Italian title of the movie is uh, Stridulum. And Stridulum is a, a Latin term. The, it's the term where we get the word strident. You know, it's hmm. something that's very loud, piercing and unpleasant to hear. And, you know, so that's the noise of the birds, a lot of the, At the end, especially the screaming and, and the score. The score has a lot of these, you know, violin shrieks mm -hmm. to it, almost as if it was uh, the noise of you know, a child simultaneously having a tantrum and an exorcism. Almost everything during the production was paid in cash. Okay, that's interesting. And that he, for a long time, he was wondering where the cash was coming from. And then he found, then he figured out in, the, in one of the production offices, there was a drop ceiling and, you know, moved one of the panels and that's where all the cash was stored. Okay, but where did the cash come from? <laughs> Well, that, that Italians. <laughs> Just, we don't know. <laughs> you know. It's better not to ask. It, yes. You know, they are legitimate businessmen. <laughs> wink, wink. 
this movie, like, it feels really expensive. And then to know all this history that basically just, like, Paradisi and the producer were just, like, hating each other while they were making it and just, like, not getting along. Because Paradisi definitely has this vision of, like, birds flapping their wings and, like, children, like, looking at you. And then, like, your car rolls up in barbed wire and you catch on fire. And also all the strange workout scenes that she does. Like, she has that gymnastics scene that's, like, intercut with her mom having surgery for her back. And then she's at the ice skating rink. She's just so talented. And and it also get, demonstrates the one of the other conflicts in there, which is that her mother is getting progressively weaker and unable to resist this powerful child. Yeah. This powerful child who is being enabled by this satanic cabal. I don't even know if you were strong if you could resist this child that's being, like, endorsed by the satanic cabal. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. You, you, think, you, you think you're afraid of people who have PCP strength. <laughs> yeah. Now, now meet Satin. What I personally love about the movie, aside from all, all aside of from the— Aside from all the history, yeah. All, you know, all the history and all the, the nuttery is that at the core— uh, Joanne Nail's character never gives up on this child, and yeah, that she is loves the, her child. Yes, uh, and it's and it's the principle that uh, John Huston's character brings to it as well. That he's he knows that this child has been influenced with you know everything but the kitchen sink, and he's he's going to, he's going to stick it out with her, and you know get get her to you know the pure purest essence that she's supposed to be. There is something kind of touching and reassuring about that. Well, my one of my favorite things, though, is the thesis of the movie that uh, John Huston delivers at the very end is that uh, you can't kill a child. You can only kill the evil within it. And so it's like and in the end, it's like children are just born good. And it's like the influences that like come to the child that make it this way. And so he just kills the evil part. He doesn't kill the child. Katie's still there. Thank you so much to Mark for all of the insights and facts about how The Visitor came to be. Knowing all of this information helps someone like me appreciate the movie even more. Mark will be joining us in the store for one more expert du jour segment this season. Can you guess which movie? I'll give you a hint. It's a Golan and Globus production, and the only musical we'll be covering this season. Time for me to lock up. But before I close shop today, I've got a question from a fan that I am so glad that they asked because it's a hotly debated topic and I've been dying to get the guy's opinions about this. This next question comes from Eric Denise from Montreal, Canada. Montreal, Canada. Well, I'm going to pass around this picture that he sent in with him and his merch. Hello. Yeah, that's, that's a dude in a bathtub full of video cassettes. I think they're DVDs. I think they're DVDs. DVDs. And he's wearing his video archive shirt that you can get at podswag.com. Where can I get that? At podswag.com. I'm sorry, one more time. Podswag.com. Is that spelled P-O-D-S-W-A-G.com? We spell that P-O-D-S-W-A-G.com. (laughs) Gotta remember how to spell real quick. (laughs) How do you spell that backwards, Gala? G-A-W-S-D-O-P. Gazdop. For some reason, I can spell it backwards faster than I can spell it forwards. Anyway. Well, cool dude. Eric's question. Hello, Roger and Quentin. My name is Eric, and I'm a French-Canadian from Montreal. I am a big fan of your podcast. Every week, I can't wait to listen to the new episode. I have a question for you. What is the difference between a movie and a film? 
I have an idea of the answer, but it is not clear in my mind. It is maybe because in French, we don't have two different words for that. I can't finish without saying hello to Gala, the third musketeer. Without you, it wouldn't be as interesting and fun. Well, thanks, Eric. I wish long live to your podcast. It's a must for every movie lover. Eric. Okay, the difference between a movie and a film, there's not really a difference, but if you're going to make a point, it's the whole thing about you're making a point. There didn't, there is an old answer that used to be the answer, and there's the answer I have today. You go ahead and give your original answer. Yeah, I I think it's- Which is the more true answer, to be honest. I don't think there is a true answer, but a movie- is meant more for entertainment and it is to entertain an audience of people who have bought a ticket to go and to be entertained for the given point of the night. And a film exists in a more nuanced category of art with a capital A. All right. And that doesn't mean that a film is more important than a movie. It doesn't mean that a film is better than a movie, but it does mean that film can operate from a, a slightly different than a, the narrow perspective of entertaining an audience that went out to see a movie on Saturday night. A movie has to entertain an audience to one degree or another that went out to see a movie on Saturday night. Uh, a stand-up comedian has the obligation to tell us some funny jokes if we left the house to go to a a comedy club to see a bunch of comedians on a Saturday night. However, somebody talking about a more spoken word situation has more of a latitude to tell us something more than jokes. You go to see Lenny Bruce, it's a completely different, that's a film. It can be a film. It can be a film. I think my description of it is a very good description. I still still think it 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 errs towards the side of pretension, nevertheless. However, if he's bringing it up because of something I said, what he's referring to is me saying that Jaws is the greatest movie ever made, and I do think it is the greatest movie ever made. There are other films, all right, that you can put up against it. And I don't think they're better than Jaws per se, but they don't exist in the same category. But when it comes to the category of what Hollywood was meant to be, a movie delivering beyond the beyond entertainment for the story it told, you're not going to get better than Jaws. Now, my more modern take on it, because that is absolutely the classical, my classical understanding, the archives uh, understanding but, of things was but that, even what as you I, described. Even as I'm describing it, I don't agree with it per se, it, all right? But I a, am describing where it's coming from. It's a, but I was not, I, I'm not co-signing that reading. Today, I would actually probably say a, a film is shot on film. And a movie is a moving picture that can be shot on video as well, <laughs> because everything's shot on video these days. I will definitely say that you cannot use the term film to describe anything that is not shot on film. And that's the show. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Video Archives After Show. Next week, join Quentin and Rogers. They discuss three new films. Want to know ahead of time what we'll be watching? Here's a riddle for all of you loyal fans out there. Try and figure it out. The first movie is a 70s tearjerker that also has the first appearance of an 80s horror icon. The second movie features a white dog who kills, but it's not the movie White Dog. 
The third movie is the second of four films with Kill in the title from a Canadian exploitation director who found his greatest success in the UK. I'm your wing walker, Gala Avery, signing out for today. See you next time on the Video Archives After Show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 